Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Leviticus chapter 9. We are looking at the second part of our worship. We are in the series Ecclesiastical Schematics, uh, looking at the doctrine of the church and some of the ins and outs and some of those things. Uh, We're going to talk in future messages about uh, government, about singing. I believe that'll be up next week about church music. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper, baptism, and all of those different uh, aspects of church life. So that'll be coming in the future. But let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Leviticus chapter 9, we'll start in verse 15. Leviticus chapter 9, starting in verse 15. These are the words of God. Then he brought near the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it and offered it for sin like the first. He also brought near the burnt offering and offered it according to the legal judgment. Next he brought near the grain offering and filled his hand with some of it and offered it up in smoke on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to him and he splashed it around on the altar. As for the portions of fat from the ox and from the ram, the fat tail and the fat covering, and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver, they now placed the portions of fat on the breasts, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved as a wave offering before Yahweh, just as Moses had commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after offering the sin offering the bur- after the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Then they came out and blessed the people. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. Then fire came down from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And all the people saw it and shouted and fell on their faces. Let's pray. Our Father in God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit so that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. 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 You can be seated. In part one of our look at worship a couple of weeks ago, we discussed the broader concept of worship as it pertains to biblical theology. Uh, If you recall, we essentially surveyed the entirety of scripture, Genesis through Revelation, Uh, in order to mine the caves of worship and its varied connotations. Remember that worship and missions go together, for missions exist with the intention of getting other nations to worship and fear the triune God. Um, In part of that worship, we would also say to get them to obey uh, Christ in every area of life. So going to the nations to disciple them, to teach them, we want them to worship and fear God. We want them to see His glory, to order their lives after His word. Having received a multiplicity of mercies from God, we are told in Romans 12 to present ourselves before the Lord as a living sacrifice. So that is scriptural Old Testament language there used in a New Testament context. We present ourselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice. So we, we offer ourselves to God, and we wish others to do the same. Um, you know, you, what's wrong with America? Well, it's because nobody's offering themselves to God, <laughs> or very few are. 
Uh, that's the root issue. We have an idol problem and we want that to be gone. We want people to follow our pattern, to set, lay it all down, to sacrifice ourselves before the Lord in obedience. And Paul says there in Romans 12, 1, that that act, this act of presenting yourselves, this is our liturgy. This is our divine service uh, to God. The liturgy that we do on the Lord's Day is supposed to be mimicked in every, every area of life, and thus the pattern is set for life on earth. We want people to pray to God. We want people to confess their sins. We want them to do what we do so that they can find the gospel and can find healing. So when we pray for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to know that this will, we're asking for God's will to be done, and this will pertains to the heavenly liturgy, so to speak. So it, let me say it this way. What is going on in heaven with its praise and adoration, extolment and worship of God, we get a glimpse of that in Revelation. That's what's happening in heaven right now. But what's going on there is to be reflected here on earth. So when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we want what's going on in heaven, the order of heaven, to be a reality here on earth. So heaven glorifies God day in and day out, nonstop, perpetual worship and adoration, and we want the earth to do the exact same thing. And Israel, we know in, from Isaiah, in a couple of places, Isaiah 42 and others, Israel was to be a light to the nations in this way. They were to demonstrate the glories of God to the nations. And we catch a glimpse of that in Solomon when the Queen of Sheba and other nations were coming to adore the Yahweh, this great God, and the, the installment of the temple and, and all of the things that were going on there. Israel was supposed to be that light. And now the church is to be that same light of the living God. Now, when we come to the concept of, of worship, Christians are largely divided on how this is to be accomplished. Everyone agrees that God is to be worshipped. I think for the most part, everybody agrees that God is supposed to be worshipped. He's supposed to be honored and adored. The question, though, is how <laughs> and in what manner and by which means. The, the worship war that truly exists in churches isn't whether or not you like rock and roll or you like you know, the, old, the old hymns and that sort of thing. That's not really the worship war. The worship war that exists is the antithesis between Christianity and idolatry. That's the real war. What is it that honors Christ and which is, what are the things that are simply idolatries? That's the only real worship war. That's the worship war of the cosmos. <laughs> what is it that honors God and then what is the idol? So winning idolaters by the power of the gospel is the worship war. So in our preaching and teaching and our gathering, our fellowship and our winning the world street, going to the streets to, to win people, to see them come to Christ in, obedience, in the obedience of faith, that, all of that is the encompassing nature of this worship war. And the reason that many Christians have created their own internal worship wars by fighting about songs and whatnot is because they have chosen to elevate their personal preferences over the Bible's teaching on the manor. Well, I think it'd be great if, you know, we, I, you see these in megachurches all the time, the uh, summer, uh, what is it called, uh, summer at the movies. And so they decorate the stage and they pull up maybe a car or something and they're like playing on 
a certain movie and this movie teaches us about life. Instead of preaching God's word, it's just sort of like, let's entertain you to death. And, 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 we, and you look at the Bible and you say, well, that, that's really not how God's to be honored and worshiped. We should probably do things that honor him. And so those personal preferences are elevated over the Bible's demands. And then you have you know, uh, churches splitting over things like music. Um, or uh, my pastor growing up told me that they split over the, uh, the water heater, the, what kind of water heater they were trying to get for their building. That's a true story, not exaggeration. So when, you, when, you, when personality becomes more important than the fear of God, when, when man-pleasing becomes more important than God-pleasing, then you have a problem. Now, my goal today is to show you how the Bible shapes our worship. That's my goal. Since the Bible is our authority for life, it's our authority for doctrine, it's our authority for worship, too when we consider how God is to be honored. The question is, what should or ought, not what we can do, what should or ought we, that is the church gathered, do in the public, not private, worship service, not other gatherings, of the Lord's Day, not Friday evening? What is it the church is supposed to do? Let's look at our text here in Leviticus 9. I want you to notice a few things about this section. First, we have several different offerings presented by the people to Yahweh. Several different descriptions and offerings. Here, the offering is brought to the tent of meeting, and the tent of meeting was a prototype of the tabernacle. It was sort of a, this is temporary until we get the tabernacle squared away. So they would go to the tent of meeting, they would offer their sacrifices. Now, later on, the tabernacle would be situated within the camp of the Israelites, and then God told the tribes where they're supposed to be situated accordingly. God cares about that. He cares about this sort of order. But the tent of meeting, which came before that, was outside the camp, which has significance. The tent of meeting was outside the camp. In, in, in uh, Exodus 33, we find that whenever Moses would enter to speak with God, he would enter the tabernacle, excuse me, he would enter the tent of meeting to speak with God. And in verse 8 of Exodus 33, the people all gathered around to watch. It was a sight to behold. Moses is going to talk with Yahweh. Everybody pay attention. And so they would look and, and look at the tent of meeting and watch as Moses goes in there to speak with God. Now, this, this tent of meeting served as a way to commune with his people, again, before the tabernacle, and then the tabernacle would give way to the temple. Now, Exodus 33.10 reads this, uh, And all the people would see the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. So we're all, at a million of us, camped out, we have our own tents and our own homes. We're, we're ordered in a certain way. And you look out outside the camp. You see the tent of meeting. There's this cloud there. God's presence is there. And Moses is going in. So what do they do at their own tents? Well, they're worshiping God. They're, they're doing something in response. Some singing, some praying. Uh, all sorts of, of family worship type things happening there. As one author notes, the sanctuary as a whole represents the human heart and soul. When the Israelites saw what was going on outside the camp and watched Moses go in, that was a symbol of God's presence in their own heart. That's, what they, that's the connection they made. Moses is going in. God has taken up residence with us. And that's a picture of God taking up residence in our own hearts. 
So when Israel gazed on that cloudy tent, they were to see their own hearts filled by God's presence there. Secondly, the offerings here had tremendously symbolic value for the worshiper. The first offering here in verse 15 is the people's offering. That's the word korban, and, and Jesus mentions that, korban, uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark. But that is the people's offering. This, this is a play on words, as literally in Hebrew it says, they near brought a, uh, a, a near bringing. They near brought a near bringing offering. And this is always step one because this offering invites the worshiper into the presence of God to bring them back to the edge of, the, of Eden's garden sanctuary that Adam had been sent away from. It's an offering that steps up into the light. That was the first offering. And God always takes the first step. God always calls us to worship him. So, so this is a call to worship, essentially. The second offering is the sin offering, the hatat. This is the, the sin offering. Aaron did one first for himself, and then he did it for the rest of, of uh, Israel. This, th it's interesting. This is sometimes called a purification offering. Depending on your translation, they will translate it uh, differently. But it's a purification offering. The worshiper has hidden himself in his sin before the Lord because ultimately that's what sin is. When Adam and Eve hid themselves that's how you know that you've sinned. So when we hide ourselves, we, we've sinned against God, we, we collapse on ourselves and we don't want anybody to know, and this is the way to bring that out. We've hidden ourselves before the Lord, this offering uncovers ourselves, and it removes the estrangement that sin causes. So that's why this particular sacrifice mattered. Atonement was made, the hindrances are cast aside, you have gone before Yahweh, offered this sin offering, and you, this is your confession of sin. So why do churches get together, at least those who care about what God cares about, why do they get together and confess their sins? Well, it's all over the Bible, but especially here. We, we pray together, and we, this is that spiritual sacrifice. Now, the third offering is the whole burnt offering. That is the olah. The word holocaust comes from this Hebrew word and concept. Um, in this offering, the smoke ascends to the heaven and to the presence of God, where God is said to inhale it. It's a pleasing aroma to him. The smoke is something he, he enjoys. Now, in burning certain portions of the animal sacrifice on the altar, God gave very specific instructions when you, when you burn that sacrifice on that altar, the worshiper would signal to God that he or she desired to ascend to the presence of God in order to petition him for certain needs. So that smoke that's going up is you going up. You are petitioning God for your needs. Um, the goal is always to secure a response from God. That's when we pray, we want God to respond. We want to pray in faith and have him respond to us. We want to hear from God, and we want to grab his ear at the same time. Now, th this is connected to the sin offering, um, but the whole burnt offering is slightly different. The worshiper has already confessed their sins to God, and God has offered that forgiveness, that sacrifice. You would put your hand on the head of the animal as a symbol of transferring your pollution, your unrighteousness, to the animal. And the animal dies in your place for your sins, 
And then when the ascension, this, this ascension offering, this whole burnt offering goes up, we have this call in response towards God. This is an unblemished burnt offering. It had to be a perfect animal, spotless, no injuries, no defects. It had to be a perfect animal because God demands perfection. So this is a call and response to God. Um, we today liken it to the preaching of God's word and the prayers of God's people. That is how God speaks to us. How does God speak to us today? His word. He's given us, given us his word. Now, how do we speak to God? We pray. And so this is that interaction that's symbolized in this sacrifice. The fourth offering is the grain offering, the minah. This is a gift. It's a tithe offering unto the Lord. It's a, a, a tr some translations will call it a tribute offering. So when we tithe to God through the church, because that's what tithing is, tithing is to God first. When we do that, we demonstrate that God is in charge of our labors. And that's a huge, hugely significant, important point, which we'll get to later in the series. But that's what you're saying. When we tithe a day, one day in seven to God, we're showing that he's in charge of our labors. But when you tithe, the tithe is connected to showing that also that God is in charge of your work. Um, because all of it is God's anyway. We're just setting apart part of it for his kingdom and his, and his work. The fifth offering listed here is the peace offering, the shalem. It's related to, you guessed it, shalom. Uh, sometimes it's called the well-being offering. The, the sacrifice here is a fellowship meal. A thanksgiving, a thanksgiving offering, a Eucharistic meal. When, we, when you read this, you, it points to the Lord's Supper. What does Christ invite us to do? To feast with him, to dine with him. So that is the Lord's Supper. Now the, reasons that, the reason these sacrifices were ordered in this way is because God is to be approached on his terms and not ours. All right? God is approached, he's to be approached in his terms and not ours. And obviously it's, it was very important for Yahweh to dictate how he is to be worshipped. How sinful man is to approach him with the reverence that's due his name. And it's very important for the priests and the people to follow along very carefully and meticulously. There was a certain order to it. Now the symbolism of the sacrifices... That obviously followed a, a, an important rationale. You think of yourself at the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or the temple, and the priest is there to help you worship. And in the new covenant, we're all priests before God, and God has set aside officers and so on. And that's, we'll talk more about that soon. But the priest would, excuse me, be there so that you could, in fact, worship God. So after all of your earthly and sinful desires are annihilated by fire, that's the burnt offering, once that is done, the worshipers then, you commune with God on the bond that brings us together, that is the covenant. And that was the grain offering or the loyalty offering. So the sins removed, now you can fellowship with God. Now you can enter back into Eden. And that's what that grain offering was for. And afterwards, the two parties, Yahweh and the worshiper, can enjoy fellowship in harmony through the peace or the fellowship offering. And that can be summarized with five C's. And many churches have kind of spelled it out this way. You have a call to worship. You have confession of sin. You have consecration unto holiness. You have communion with God. And you have commission for service. 
All of that is stemmed from here, this passage, and other passages in, in Leviticus as well. And notice that in verse 22, notice that Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. That's called a benediction. <laughs> so it's interesting to see how God organizes his people in worship. Now flip to 1 Corinthians 14.40. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you have the Gospels there, you have Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. I just want you to remember what I said last time about this verse. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40 says, But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Paul is speaking, and we're going to get into some of this, but Paul is speaking about when you gather Several times in chapter 11 and, and, and 12, 13, 14, he's talking to the Corinthian church about when you assemble, when you come together. And so there's this assumption there that the church gathers together like what we do here. So when you come together, these things should be happening. It should be done in a certain way. And what they do in their worship gatherings, Paul says, what their liturgy, their work together, their service is, is to be done properly and orderly. So it's, you don't show up and say, all right, what are we doing, Pastor Jason? I don't know. What do you guys want to do? Let's just dance in a circle. You know, the, it's not, it literally goes against this verse. There should be some orderliness to it. Um, and Paul says as much. The word properly is where we get the word schematics, hence the series name. Uh, the phrase, in orderly manner, it's one Greek word, it's, in, it's taxis, it quite literally just means orderedness, orderly. Paul tells them that their worship, what they do when they gather together, should be arranged in sequence. Uh, there should be a good order there, it should be put in a state of good order. Um, it's not to be just chaos and everybody does whatever is right in their own eyes, we know how that goes. So there should be procedures, um, not extemporaneous chaos involved. So Scripture commands us to, to order and coherence, not disheveled will worship. That's Colossians 2. Now, any first century Jew, when seeing these words and others like liturgia and these, these words that were used to describe the gathering and the assembly, they would immediately hearken back to the temple sacrifices, which they represented. When you hear certain words, and Paul uses certain words, you would immediately think, oh yeah, temple, tabernacle. That's temple tabernacle language. Now, as I mentioned earlier in this series, the synagogue model, the synagogues developed with these concepts in mind. The temple was destroyed. They needed to gather for worship. So what did they do? They had the synagogues and there were elders and pastors and teachers and whatnot there. And what the Christians did was sort of take it from Jewish worship and Christianize it. They took the concepts because the synagogues represented much of what the temple looked like. There were certain things that happened, preaching and teaching and prayers and, and all of that. But they took that synagogue model, and then Christian worship was birthed as a result. Now, how do we live? How shall we then live? A question we ask frequently here. Well, we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And as a result of this, we are worshipers of the triune God. And this means that we need to keep a few things in mind. 
For starters, we need to remember that Scripture is our authority. We have to insist upon that at every turn, no matter what it is. Scripture is our authority. Everything else is just man's words. Scripture is our authority. Everything we do must be based on Scripture, authorized by Scripture, for Scripture is God's self-revelation. Consequently, worship is about what God likes. Worship is about what God likes, what God commands, and not what we conjure up in our own vain imaginations. What shall we do today? Well, let's light something on fire and call it good. Be careful, Yahweh will light you on fire. He's done it before. But that's what worship is about. Worship is what God likes. What does God expect from his people? And it's not whatever we can come up with and invent in our own imaginations. Think about it this way. I have a few questions for you. Why is it that God rejected Cain's offering and not Abel's? They both, they both came to worship God, but why, why was Abel's offering approved and Cain's was not? Why did God issue the second commandment? Why was the golden calf of Exodus 32 such a big deal? Because they threw in the gold and out came the calf. Aaron's biggest excuse he's ever made in his life there. Oh, this is, it's just, it just happened to happen. <laughs> and behold Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt, this calf. <laughs> no. Why was that a big deal that God hated it? And, and God and Moses are talking. He's like, yeah, those guys, they, they're messing up already. I know you just got up to the top of the mountain, but you're going to have to go fix this. <laughs> Why was that a big deal? When Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire on the altar in Leviticus 10, why did God kill them in response? What about Deuteronomy? Repeatedly warning us not to add to God's word. What's the big deal about Saul, the first king of Israel, offering up an unprescribed act of worship, which prompted Samuel to confront him and say that obedience is better than sacrifice? What was the big deal about that? Can't you just do what you want? <laughs> Why would Jesus condemn the Pharisees and their vainly repetitious prayers, where they stroll through the town and speak loudly and show in their ostentatious attitudes, look how holy I am and listen to my repetitious prayers? Why would, why would Jesus condemn that? What was Jesus getting at when he rejected the worship of the Samaritans? Remember the woman at the well in John 4. And he said, no, you guys are at that mountain. The Jews are at this mountain. Both mountains are wrong. But you guys are way wrong because salvation is from the Jews. Why was Jesus so careful to correct her on the issue of worship? Did it matter? I think it did. And the answer to this is based on that passage in John 4. Jesus said, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. That's what God wants. People who worship in spirit and truth. He goes on, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We have a command right in front of us. What does God demand? He demands that his worshipers worship him in spirit and truth. Now, to worship in truth is to worship God in terms of the Bible. It's in terms of the self-revelation of God in Christ. Uh, and it's given to us in Scripture by the Holy Spirit. That's how you worship in truth. You do what Scripture commands and not your, your own inventions. 
To worship in spirit is another way of saying that worship must always proceed from a transformed heart. That's what spirit and truth means here. The internal workings of the heart is what matters in worship. The disposition of the heart, the intentions of the heart, the motivations, the sincerity or lack thereof, the reverence or lack thereof, the posture of the heart, even the intensity of the heart, that is what matters. That is what mattered then in Leviticus, and it's what matters today as well. Worship that is not done from the heart is condemned by the prophets. Isaiah 1 just goes hard after that. I, and I think God's doing that with Christians today. If you neglect justice and righteousness, he didn't want to hear your prayers. He didn't care about your singing. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. Being doers of the word is better than merely being a hearer. So, but God wants our hearts. It was condemned by the prophets. It was condemned by the Lord. When Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When the Bible says that, the Bible is urging us, that is the entire church, to come to God, to draw near just like that near broad offering in order to approach God. And we approach God not with duplicity in our hearts, but with sincerity and truth. And it is possible to come to God on the outside, like right now. It's possible to come to Him on the outside and be entirely bereft of true worship. And why is that? Because the heart isn't in it. And I think that that's, that is biblical scriptural religion. It's heart. It's heart. And you can do all the external things. That was why Jesus condemned the Pharisees. But you can do all the extra. You can just give, give until your bank account's empty. If your heart's not in it, it doesn't matter. You can sing and sing and sing on the outside and be entirely self-worshipping in that moment. It's, it's a fulcrum on which everything turns. It is, it is the heart that God has called us to worship Him in that spirit and in truth. Now, the New Testament uses a lot of Old Testament imagery, and it applies it to our lives, and it especially applies to our liturgy. Remember, liturgy is the work of the people, what we do together. We, the church, are called to be a pleasing aroma to God. That's twice in 2 Corinthians, and it's also Philippians 4.18. Pleasing aroma is Old Testament language. That's, we are not to be stinky in the bad way. And we're stinking in the bad way when, when our hearts are completely polluted. Paul believed himself to be poured out like a drink offering in 2 Timothy 4.6. A libation offering, a drink offering, part of temple worship. In Romans, Paul likens the Gentiles to being an offering unto God. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, the church is supposed to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God through the vehicle of our lips. And we'll get into the singing more next time. But that's an important uh, concept to see, that we are a sacrifice of praise to God. Our lives should be always praising God for his sovereignty and his goodness, his mercy. The tribute offering is, is giving ourselves totally to God, pouring out our lives in service to him. We were made to worship God, to reflect his glory individually and corporately, your private worship, what you do in your Bible reading at home, in your prayer time, um, your singing in the car, 
whatever you do, that's to dovetail with your corporate worship. The spiritual food that is served up is, is, is supposed to dovetail with what you've already been reading, what are, you've already been studying, and what you have already been praying through. So remember, I said this last time, but worship is for the heavenization of the earth. We want to heavenize the earth to set the liturgy of our lives in terms of God's law word. Now, why do we do what we do? And I want to, I think the answer is really simple. Why do we do what we do? You look at your bulletin and why do we do these things? Well, we do, the short answer is we do what we do because the Bible explains those things and tells us that. Um, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul speaks about corporate worship, what we do in the church. That's in verse 19. Um, when you assemble, he says in 14, verse 26, certain things are supposed to happen. He even lists them. Edification, exhortation, and encouragement is supposed to take place. He says that in verse 3. The goal in verse 4 is to edify or build up the church. In the worship service of the church, he says in verse 26, let all things be done for edification. Now that said, Paul also says in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. What does God expect his people to do? To be shaped by the word. Teaching, preaching, reading of Scripture, exhortations are supposed to take place in the worship of the church. And that is the liturgy of the word. Acts 13, 15 speaks of the synagogue officials. They were reading the law and the prophets, and they invited Paul to speak. He was the guest preacher that day. We know that Jesus read from the law in the synagogue as well, and they wanted to kill him as a result. In Acts 13, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas, they were gathered together with the church for liturgy. That word is used there. When the Reformation, 500 years ago, just fast-forwarding, when that sprung forth, the Protestant reformers recaptured the importance of preaching and teaching in Christ's assembly and preaching in a way that's intelligible, that you can understand, that you can grow into. Uh, the, the, the Catholic Mass was never designed for that. It was just they're the, they're the clergy doing the work up there. They're doing all because you guys can't be trusted with it. <laughs> you know, and, and so what you had was this separation but the reformers said, no, 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 God has equipped the church with pastors and teachers and elders and people with gifts, and, 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 and you should participate, and we should accomplish this task together. So teaching is important. But we also have, even here today, as we do every week, the liturgy of the table, the Eucharist. Paul rehearses this sacrament given to the church by Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11. Christians are to gather together. They're to partake of the bread and the wine together in communion with God and communion with each other. The book of Acts tells us repeatedly they, get, they gathered together to share all things in common and to break bread, the breaking of the bread being the Eucharist meal. As far as I can tell, there's debate, but I think that's where I land on it. In, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, the church gathered on the first day of the week. So we learn also, think of a, that's just in from Scripture, but we also learn from Pliny the Younger. He wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan in 112 AD, and he was describing the fact that Christians would get together before dawn to gather for worship. And you might ask, well, why? Why did they get up before dawn, and why did we stop? Well, the reason is because it was a work day. 
you go and you worship God on the Lord's Day before work. Took some time to, you know, break free from that, but that's what they did. And after work, Pliny even to- he tells the emperor Trajan at the time that after work they would reconvene for ordinary and innocent food. So they would use the Lord's Day for various things like getting together with the people of God to rejoice, enjoy fellowship meal, and so on. So that happened in, that was 112 A.D. Just a few years after the last apostle died. And there's reason to believe that they took the Eucharist in the morning and then they celebrated with food in the evening. But there was a lot of different scenarios going on because of the various cultural pressures. But I mention all of this for the simple fact that it is important to know that what we do here at Cross and Crown, we believe, is rooted in Scripture. The elements, I'm going to make a distinction here, the elements are unchanging. When you think of the elements, what are the elements? The teaching, the preaching, the praying, the singing, the confessing of our sins, the meal, being sent out on this mission. All of those are elements. Those are unchanging elements. Now, the forms change. The forms can change. And the circumstances obviously change too. Let me give you an example. So we know that those things I just mentioned are are elements that the Bible requires. He wants us to gather for the public reading of Scripture, for praying, all of those things. Um, Baptism, Lord's Supper, that stuff. But the form changes because what do we do? What changes every Sunday here? Well, we look at different passages of Scripture. We pray different prayers. Um, we see different people. Sometimes we talk to different people. Um, some of those forms change, and circumstances change too, because you could be a Chinese Christian meeting in a cave. You could also meet in a home. You could meet in a facility like this. Circumstances change. Um, you, you, could, you could go on the Lord's Day and on your private jet and gather the church and fly somewhere and worship God on a plane. I mean, you know, those are silly, but that's for you kids. Uh, It can be done. Um, But those circumstances change. But the point is, these activities are supposed to happen, and how they take shape depends on certain things, but it's important that they happen because it shapes us, it molds us, it helps us to keep our focus to, to make sure that our hearts are involved in it. And it should be regulated and informed by Scripture so that we honor God in what we do. So when God's people gather, we are focused in our worship on the Word. We approach the Word, we confess to the Word, we pray the Word, we sing the Word, we read the Word, we preach the Word, and we partake of the Word. All of it is Word-centered. It's not man-centered, it is Bible-centered. It's Jesus-centered. So everything we must do has to be word-centered. Everything we do is dialogical. We hear from God's word and we speak back to God, which is why we tend to do more interactive worship elements, things where you, the congregation, we are in unison dialoguing back and forth with God, the triune God. Um, All of that is supposed to showcase, if you will, the communion we have with God. God calls us to worship, and we adore Him and praise Him. God calls us to confess our sins, and so what do we do? We bow before Him, and we do just that. God declares us forgiven in Christ, and what do we do? We cry out in gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me of my sins. God speaks to us through His Word, and we respond by dedicating ourselves wholly unto it. 
God invites us to eat with him. So we respond with joy and gratitude by partaking of the Lord's Supper. And God sets us apart for his commission. So we affirm in the benediction that our, com our commitment is to his service. Our commitment is to something else going on in the world. And we need to be a part of it. So we are not here to exalt ourselves or to be entertained. No, we are here to humble ourselves before the living God. We come with a plan and a purpose. I pray through this all week, trying to organize it. God, how, what songs can tie into this? What songs, you know, helps us in our worship so that we can really reflect on this truth about you? What are the things that we can say in response in order to magnify your glory? And we saw this earlier in 1 Corinthians 14.40. It's not am ambiguous. What we do must be done properly and orderly. Worship should engage our hearts and minds, and it should motivate us for greater faith and obedience. And worship is about God. It's about his glory and grandeur and grace. So why wouldn't we sing to the top of our lungs? Don't ever be shy to sing. Now, if your heart, if you, come, you, you came in with a lot of baggage, I could see why maybe you wouldn't sing to the top of your lungs. But that's, that's where the worship wrestling goes on. You have to know that you're forgiven in Christ and that you can be motivated to that. But none of us, we're not to gather for our favorite parts. You know, maybe our favorite parts are the music or the, the table or the message, or maybe you just really love benedictions and that's the only reason you're here. <laughs> we don't gather for a narcissistic fashion where we are concerned only with what we think. Um, you hopefully aren't sitting there thinking, boy, I have a crazy week ahead of me. Let me do this. Let me do my grocery list real quick. Let me, where you're just utterly distracted. That shouldn't be the case either. We shouldn't space out in mindless rote, just going through the motions. We have to prepare ourselves for worship, and that starts on Saturday night. Now, there is a war for the world out there. Um, it's seen in our liturgy. It's meant to be seen in the world. People gathered to confess their sins, to be restored by God's grace, and enter his gates with thanksgiving. That's what's happening. And we want the will of God to be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that in the New Testament, this scaffolding has been removed. We don't come together, and none of you brought a bull with you to sacrifice, right? You didn't bring goats. If you did, that would be weird, just FYI. But we don't offer that blood of, that, of the goats anymore. We don't offer that blood anymore. Christ is, is our sacrifice. He has been sacrificed for us. So what changed isn't the demand for sacrifice, but the medium. What changed wasn't that God demands us to sacrifice ourselves before the Lord. That didn't change. How that was carried out changed. Christ entered when he died, the veil was split. He entered into behind the veil, the holiest of the holies. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the altar. He is the fire. He is the bread. He is the light. All those symbols in the tabernacle point to Christ. He is the high priest. He entered on our behalf, and now we have access to the Father. Indeed, we are today seated in the heavenly places. So when we gather like this, we need to remember his covenant. Our worship liturgy, you see here in your bulletin, is modeled after the covenant. Transcendence and hierarchy. Um, ethics. We also talk about the oath and succession. That, those are covenantal terms that we've modeled so we can remember the covenant and remember who we belong to and what God has done. And we do all of this because Christ has brought us near. We no longer stand afar looking at the tent, 
Christ is our mediator. The models of, of heaven in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, those models have become a full heavenly reality to us now. And it's our job to see through those things with the eyes of faith so that we might honor God with our hearts and our minds and our hands and our feet. So joy, joy must be in your heart if you're to worship God. And when you're in Christ, you have all the reasons you need to be joyful and exuberant in worship. You have what you need. And we thank God for the gospel, for the worship we get to participate in, and for the liturgy of life we get to illustrate in front of a watching world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you this day. We glorify you and not ourselves. We want you to be honored in the depths of our being. We want our hearts to be torn asunder by your grace so that we would live for you. Help us to have joyful, gleeful hearts in here, in this time, in this place, but also when we leave, in our homes, in our jobs, as we minister to the broken, the needy, the poor, minister to the estranged. Wherever we find ourselves, God, we have an opportunity to be exuberant in our worship and our obedience to you. So I pray that you would equip us for that. May your spirit continually drive us back to the truth of your word. We want to be word-centered Christians, not selfish Christians. Help us to pour ourselves out in living sacrifice to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.